Okay, today I'm joined on a Zoom call uh, from uh, Australia with Racecourse bookmaker and, and internet bookmaker now, Warren Woodcock. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us today, Warren. Um, thank, thank you for having me, Simon. Uh, you're welcome. Um, one thing you told me, you've, you've laid a bet to lose $5 million to uh, none other than Tom Waterhouse. So should we go straight into that and tell us how on earth you did that? Um, because I, I screwed up, uh, to be very honest. Um, we have a thing called the Call of the Card. It's one of the big events of the racing calendar. Uh, it's on the Monday before the Melbourne Cup, where we have to bet any customer to win a quarter of a million dollars. And most of us tend to bet to win half a million or maybe a million dollars. And with smarter punters like Tom, most bet probably to win the minimum quarter million, but um, he wanted to back a horse that I didn't like. And uh, so he said, oh, can I have 50,000 on it? And I said, uh, sure, it was a hundred to one shot. And my brain just didn't work. I thought I was laying it to lose 500,000. And uh, in fact, I was laying it to lose 5 million. And I was described in the newspaper the next day as a befuddled bookmaker because I think the look on my face was pretty, uh, I turned a little bit of a shade of green. What on earth do you do when you realize you've done something like that? Do you, do you hedge it? You sure do, because uh, uh, let's be very blunt, at that point in my life, uh, five million would have put me uh, living under the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll, we'll go more about your uh, the way you do things and the call of the car, because that's very interesting, I'd imagine, for people over here. Um, but first of all, can we go back to, you're actually born in America, uh, not Australia. Can you tell us a bit about your, uh, your early life? Sure. I was born in Florida. Uh, my father was an uh, Australian tennis pro uh, who met my mother in Europe when he was playing, you know, on the world tennis circuit. And he then uh, was the first of the very good players that actually went to America to teach realizing there was you know, good money in it. So he was the head tennis pro at the Forest Hills with the West, uh, West Side Tennis Club where the US Open was, and also in Florida where I was born and he was the pro at the Boca Raton Hotel and Club in Boca Raton, Florida. And he, he um, taught some quite, quite successful tennis players. He sure did. Um, it's a funny thing when you wake up, you know, you think now how crazy it was. But when I was a little kid, you know, my babysitters were Vetus Gerolitis and Peter Fleming and Roscoe Tanner, uh, all students of my father's um, who he taught as juniors, really, you know, to get them to that, you know, high level of play. Not uh, a lot of guys go on tour and coach guys once they reach tour level my father got them to tour level and uh you know peter fleming very nicely every time i see him says without your dad i never would have played on tour right so unsurprisingly it rubbed off on you as well you were not only good at tennis but also golf um i wasn't bad um i was the second best tennis player in my household <laughs> um i was the best golfer um but uh my father didn't play so that's probably why i was number one if he'd played i probably would have been two at that also Okay, now, when your father became a bookmaker in 1984, why did he, it seems like quite a, quite a sort of leap from being a very successful tennis coach to being a bookmaker. Why, why did that happen? 
Well, his parents, he came, he was born and raised in Australia. He lived in Randwick and he spent his adult life in America. But as his parents got sick, they got older and, and needed sort of some help. He came back to look after them, which was, you know, an incredible thing at his stage of life. And uh, I think he was probably a little bored. He started going to the races socially, became good friends with some of the leading bookmakers. And they eventually said, hey, stop, you know, wanting to lay things with us, take out your own license. And he did. Did you, I don't know how old you'd have been at the time, but were you instantly sort of attracted to the race course game? Um, well, I really was. My father had driven, had harness horses when we lived in America. So I'd gone to the racetrack since I was young, you know, with my father who uh, had horses at Pompano Park in Florida and at Monticello in the Meadowlands. And, uh, you know, so I was always interested in the racing, but uh, from a gambling point of view, I really had no interest until I uh, came to visit my father in Australia and he suddenly put me to work and that was sort of the beginning of it and I loved it. Now you say he suddenly put you to work, you, you had a bit of a baptism of fire uh, taking over the clerking, didn't you? It was a very funny thing. My father is not the best organized quite often and uh, what exactly happened was I arrived at Sydney airport and he said would you like to go to the house or would you like to come to the races at Gosford and I said dad I'm tired I'd love to go to the house. And he said, well, you can't. I don't have anyone working today and I need you to come help. And I said, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So uh, long story short, we drove to Gosford. We had the big, they had these massive books, you know, like the old penciler books with the six columns. And as we were driving, he was explaining to me what goes in each column. And so I got there and then he handed me the bag and I put the bag over my shoulder and we had the the book there and I was writing and about the third race he said to me how are we going today and I said I don't know and he said well check the ledger and I said well I've only gotten about one bet and six in the ledger he says well how will we know how we're standing and I said well it's very simple if we have more money when we leave than we started we won because I'm not stealing it so that was my first day at Gosford interesting there because um i don't know in the uk with a similar thing with the big field book and what you do is write the number next to the bet the punter would get a, a ticket with a number on it now i'm assuming that you had to write the bet or something on the ticket because uh otherwise you'd be absolutely clueless as to as to well my father what. was my father was on the stand writing you know think big 78 dollars and handing the ticket and then he'd right, call right. the bet to me I just wasn't getting them from him to the book. So in fact, uh, when people came back, it was, okay, that's $112, you know, pay them and, and stick it in the bag and we'll add that one to the ledger later. I mean, it's, I hope there's a statute of limitations on failing to report your tax. So when, when did you take out your own license? When did you decide to become a bookie? About six months later. Um, my father and I decided that, like most fathers and sons, while I love my father dearly and have great respect for him, um, as a matter of fact, I have his painting that I had done of him behind me when he was playing at the German Championships, but we decided that we also had our own different views and how we wanted to do things at the races, and I was probably a little bit more 
risk taker and he was a little bit more risk averse. So we both took out our licenses, had dog licenses and trotting licenses, harness racing licenses. And then because of what we were creating, um, we were creating some incredible stands that were customer service related. We only, we only had the one thoroughbred license because we really couldn't run our thoroughbred business on our own. Okay. So um, another interesting thing you told me, the two guys that you took on turned out to be a couple of the biggest punters in Australia. Uh, did you take them on because they were good form students and they could help mark your card? Or was that something that they developed after they started working for you? No, the funny thing is, is one of them actually, when he first came to us, is he came to the races, at, it was at Rose Hill, and he came to the races with his mother, he was about 17 at the time, and he said, his mother came up and said, my son would really love to get into the racing business, would you be interested in hiring him? And my father and I have always both believed very strongly that we don't want to hire racetrack people. And that's no disrespect to them, but we want to hire young, exuberant people who aren't jaded by the, you know, having been on a race course for 35 years. So I don't want the Clark that, you know, saw Farlap running around. Uh, I'd like to have the Clark that is 19 years old, especially girls that are very attractive, because let's be honest, our racing public is mostly men and a very attractive girl will, will draw the crowd in. But at the time, he came up, we hired him because he was a good looking young guy, um, seemed interested and we thought he might make a good Clark and uh, he made a fantastic Clark. And about a year later, he brought his brother to the stand and, and suddenly we had the two of them and history has said that uh, they've done a hell of a lot better than we have. Okay, so they're, they're punters, they're professional gamblers? Yes. And yeah, they're two brothers. The funny thing is, no, they don't. Um, and it's, it's quite, it's, it is actually humorous in the fact that um, they both have runners on the race course who bet for them. And, you know, bookies will say, hey, you packed it with him and him and you left him out. Why don't you back them with him? And his, their runners will say, because we'd like to keep our jobs. And we've been told under no circumstance to have a bet with me, more because We've stayed very good friends. We're very, very close. And uh, as they put it, if we go to lunch or dinner, they don't want me to be uh, forking over my money to them. And they know they'll beat me. Hey, can, you, can you say who they are or is that a secret? Yeah, no, it's, it's not a secret. It, uh, one is Sean Bartholomew and the other is his brother Kingsley. So the Bartholomew brothers. Okay, so we're, we're moving away again. You've moved back to America in 1995, why did you gravitate back there? Well, I thought that there was an opportunity in the fact that it looked like they were going to leave, they were legalizing sports betting here in Australia to a much bigger degree for bookies. But I thought there would, would be an opportunity for them to legalize sports betting in America. And I felt that there was an opportunity to go to America you know, do a little groundwork and sort of prepare uh, for that opportunity to materialize. And uh, I was right. I just happened to be 20 years too early. And um, I went to Wall Street and worked on Wall Street because, you know, hey, 
you know, as one famous guy once said, you know, why did he rob banks? Because that's the where the money was. If you're a bookmaker, you want to go find customers. Well, guys on Wall Street have a tolerance for risk and, and sort of, you know, are punters by nature. Okay, well, I stopped you at the last, just for the last bit. So I wanted to ask you this question. Now, you told me that when you were working in America, in the city, you were on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center until March 2000. So everybody knows what happened a year later. You must sort of feel that you had a bit of a lucky escape there, really. I do. I, I very much do. And, and um, it was an amazing time when 9-11 came for, first off, my daughter, my wife got pregnant with my daughter, Charlie, and um, we decided we didn't want sort of nannies raising her. And uh, I decided that I sort of really wasn't enjoying working indoors and being in the job I was, I had. So uh, we decided to make a change, and it was an amazing thing because on September 11th, um, I was talking to a friend of mine in the building when the plane hit, um, Tom Dennis, who, I, when it happened, I said, are you going to go up or go down? And he said, oh, I'll just walk down. I'll call you when I get to the bottom. And about five minutes later, um, I didn't even think that much of it because if you worked in the World Trade Center planes would come up out of Newark airport and they'd sort of turn left and they would be coming straight towards the building. And then they'd either veer up the East river, up the Hudson river, depending on where they were going. And um, long story short, I just assumed it was a small plane that had hit it because he didn't seem very stressed by it. And two or three minutes later, my next door neighbor who was a football coach for the Miami dolphins came walking through my back door and said, did you hear planes? And I said, yeah, I spoke to Tom. He's walking down. He said, no, another one's hit the other tower. And then I think reality struck. Uh, but it was a very tough period because um, afterwards I went to, I really went for about three weeks straight to just five funerals a day, you know, and a lot of people, which, you know, was very uncomfortable because a lot of you know, wives and husbands looked at you like, hey, my husband has passed away. What are you doing here? Uh, you know, but I was very fortunate to have left. I still to this day te teasingly tell my daughter that she saved my life by uh, coming into it. And to me, did Tom not make it down? No, no one, no one from Cantor who showed up. I worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. No one from Cantor Fitzgerald who actually got into the building up to the office survived. Wow. It's a very tragic day. Uh, so, I mean, does something like that change your attitude to life and its problems forever after? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think the first thing that it does is it takes you about a year to, at least for me, it took me about a year just to really want to go out and live life. Um, but once you do, you, you very much wake up and go, you better damn well enjoy it because you're blessed to be here. Yeah. Uh, so you've been in that time, I'm happier that you've moved to Florida, which is, I've never been, but apparently it's a lovely place. You ran a tennis club, which seems quite idyllic. And you trained uh, Sophie Kennan, who won the Australian Open. So chip off the old block as far as your father was concerned then. 
Well, it's funny. I, um, I went back to Florida and I first got, I also played golf as a kid and I got involved uh, with a professional golf, small golf tour and worked with it for a few years. And then I got an offer from a club to go back to coaching. I had coached previously and I took the job. And as it just so happened, I was teaching a few good players. Actually, I was teaching a young boy who actually beat Andy Murray in the juniors. Uh, he was playing against him from the Bahamas, Devin Mullings. And I worked with a few very good juniors. And I just happened to see this young girl, Sophia Kennan, um, when she was about six and started teaching her, taught her for about three years, two and a half, three years. Uh, used to pick her up at her house uh, and then take her to the courts when she got home from school. And she was just this, you know, cute little button of a thing. And I really, to be honest, which shows you what a dope I am, uh, I didn't think she would ever make it on tour. Uh, because I thought she was too physically small. Um, but she, you know, got to a five, 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 six, maybe, but she's just so feisty and tough that she's made it on just sheer will and determination. Her father, Alex, has taken over coaching her and has done a great job with her. Okay, so fast forward to 2013 and you're back in Australia and you've uh, gone back to bookmaking so that you couldn't stay away. Well, I, yeah, I, I, my father was getting a little older and um, he needed some help because our, you know, we had a pretty good sized business in Sydney and I came and my father had decided that he wanted to expand the business to Melbourne. And uh, it's quite a funny tale. His first day, he decided he was going to, we were going to split the time. I was going to spend part of it in Sydney, part of it in Melbourne and vice versa. And he went to Bendigo and he hadn't really been in a ring for a long time because we have these standout loan stands offering, you know, great service, but an across the board type thing. Um, and so he went into the ring and he had a dreadful, dreadful day and decided he really didn't like being in the ring and traded out and went back to Sydney and to be perfectly blunt, except for big races, I've been in Melbourne ever since. Hey, no, that. And in that relatively short time, it's only eight years ago, uh, you're now the busiest bookie in Victoria. So tell us a little bit about how you, how you build that up. Because in the UK, you have to buy pitches. You know, that, that, that's really now the only way you can do it. It used to be dead man's shoes. Now you have to buy pitches. So you need a hell of a lot of money if you wanted to, even if they come available. You know, it's very difficult to become that big that quick. Yeah, no, it, it is. And it's a funny thing. When I went into my interview with the Victorian Bookmakers Association, they said, you know, you do realize you're going to have to buy a license. And I said, well, I really can't bring myself to buy a license. I'm just going to ask, well, how do you expect to get ahead? And I said, well, I'm just going to put down for every meeting in the state every month. And when I get my opportunities, I'm just going to keep grabbing them and go to anywhere and everywhere that I can. And how are you going to find customers? And you know, I said, well, you know, we have a little bit of a method. We have a very customer service oriented business. And I don't find, think the customers will be the problem. I think that the opportunity will be in the first year. I think I probably only worked about 12 meetings. And then amazingly enough, I got a tremendous break in 2014. Um, I had put down for a rails position 
as you know, you, you put down for where you'd like to work. I put down for everywhere, but I had on there rails. And Tom Waterhouse uh, comes back into the story because he sold his business to William Hill. And when he sold his business, he gave up his rails positions and you wouldn't believe, but by some miracle, I was the only person on the reserve list for the rails at Flemington and Caulfield and Mooney Valley and Sandown, which are four major tracks in Victoria. And I got right in on the rails. The first day I ever showed up at Flemington to work was Derby Day. I'd never been there before. And I walked onto the track on Derby Day to work. Okay, now we talked about Tom earlier. Um, at the call of the card, I'm interested to go back a little bit to this call of the card. I've, after you told me about it, I've watched, I've seen a few videos. In fact, you're on one of them. Um, so basically, it's a big dinner. All the top punters, the bookmakers are there with their prices, and then the punters can call out, you know, the bets they want. Fascinating for over here because um, there's a lot of restrictions, and the big punters, you know, have a job to get on. Now, you say any punt any so is it a prerequisite that when you go you've got to lay any punter to lose a quarter of a million dollars is that the rule if you win it yes it's a it's look it's, a, it's an unwritten rule no one's broken it that i've ever seen but um the simple reality is when you ask say i'd like to be one of the guys at the call of the card um they basically say you're going to have to stand horses for a minimum of a quarter of a million dollars and I said yes and got an opportunity to get in and have now done it for the last, I think I've done it five years. Um, protectionist when he won the cup was a dreadful result. And uh, last time we had the call the card, um, Vow and Declare won the cup two years ago. And that was a dreadful result. I, I thought it was a big risk. And I stood it and, and did had an awful result with it. But uh, it's a fabulous event. It's an event, funnily enough, um, you know, you talk about buying pitches. Rob Waterhouse and I are good friends. And he's bought a pitch at uh, Ascot, which he's never been able to use since he bought it right before COVID. Um, but I will go with him. And we do this a couple times a year where I will go and work with him as a clerk, or he will sometimes come to meetings with me that he can't get into and work as a clerk. Um, it always ends up that he's the form guru, you know, the big boss, I'm sort of the money taker, but uh, that's fine because his he actually does form and I wouldn't know how long the races are. But uh, at the call of the card, we've had a great experience there and, and it's a fabulous event. I spoke to Rob, I said, why the heck don't when we go to London next year for Royal Ascot, why don't we try and put something on like this at the Dorchester or, uh, you know, anywhere from the hotels in, in London and do one leading up to one of the big days of the Ascot Carnival. It seems wow. to be a, just an absolute logical fit. And uh, I know I would love to do it. I'd love to, and I know Rob would do it. And, I can't imagine that some of the big corporates wouldn't send someone, you know, along to let punters on. No. Well, it'd, it'd be, be brilliant. It'd, it'd be great it, fun. It would be. I hope you can do it because it would show up for the big corporates, that's for sure. Well, I, I know that you're, I know that Star Sport would come. 
<laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the thing, the, right, anyway, I'll go, but that would be brilliant if that happened. I'm sure you get fantastic publicity from it. Um, but I'm assuming that when you're at the call of the cards, you've got to lay guys, you see them in there like, like sharks, just people that you would normally not really want to take a bet to lose a quarter of a million dollars to. I mean, so why do it? Well, I think it's, a, I think it's a, there's a few reasons to do it. Number one is it's very good for your brand. Um, you know, people, the call of the card is a, a fairly big deal in Australia. It does make the news and makes all the headlines around the country. So to have your name associated with it and having people talking about your, uh, what you've done there the day before is very good. Um, I think that the call of the card is something that I think could be changed and improved. And we haven't spoken about this yet, but I have a lot of theories about bookmaking that are contrary to my, my competitors. And one of the biggest ones is the call of the card has 2000 people there. And the truth of the matter is it's really set up for four or five people to get their bets on. And the small punter who's paying 400 bucks for a ticket can't get a bet because as soon as Tom Waterhouse says, you know, 20,000 on the $26 shot to win half a million, I say to win 500,000, I'm now $21. And no one else gets the $26 in the room. And what I've always believed is that we're in a customer service industry and it might make a heck of a lot more sense to say, why don't we let everyone who wants to have a thousand on it have two minutes or a minute to you know, take the price and then let the big guys come over the top and ask to back them to win two, three, four hundred thousand. Okay, so finally on the call of the card, are you supremely confident in your own pricing or are you hoping that the ego gets the better of the punters and that they're going to have a bit much? too much on that they would normally have because they're there and they've had a couple of drinks and which is it the e the ego of the punter has never seemed to be a factor they're they're they hit very straight um i have had three calls where i've had good results um and two where i've had bad results um bow and declare was was not good but i laid it at i think 13 dollars, and i could have gotten 15 dollars on the day back um, so technically it was a good bet. Um, and if they ran the race, I think another 20 times, it wouldn't win again. It was a, just Craig Williams, maybe put the best ride you'll ever see. Anyone who's on your watches, your shows should go watch the ride. He's drawn the parking lot and ended up behind the leader before they got to the winning post. Um, just an incredible ride. And, uh, you know, the English horse looked like it had won. It just ran out of puff in the last three or four strides and got nailed. So, um, but I do have a slight advantage. You know, I do talk to the boys. I talk to Sean and Kingsley and say, you know, hey guys, what price, you know, do you have these horses marked? And the one thing they've been fantastic about is they might say no comment, but they've never lied to me. They've never said, you know, we're, we have a $20 and me put up pens and get pummeled. Okay, Warren. Um... You, you've mentioned Rob Waterhouse, and funny enough, Rob Waterhouse told me, name dropping, that you are the best bag man in the modern age in Australia. Uh, 
if he says that, you, you probably are. So what makes you that? Um, I think, to be perfectly honest, that people by nature have a little bit of a habit that if you think about it, if you go to a bar and the bartender says, what would you like? Even if you're not ready to order, you order. And at the races, I say to people, may I help you? And when I say that to someone, they immediately, oh, yes, I'll have. And so I think by doing that, I get punters betting earlier in betting, which allows me to turn over more tickets through the, say, 20-minute betting period. Um, I also have a little bit of a ability to be dealing with customer A while I'm already talking to customer B. Okay, so you you bet at 60 racecourses, that's more than there are in Great Britain, and you do 100,000 miles a year. Um, kilometers, kilometers, please. 100,000 <laughs> kilometers in a year. Even so, it's still quite a lot. Um, yeah. So how many days How many days a week do you work? Pre-COVID, yeah, pre COVID, I was working probably seven or eight meetings a week. Um, and when I say that is we have, I have gotten to the stage where I actually have licenses on say Saturdays and some of the other days where I have positions at two different race courses on the same day. So I'll send one of my key employees to one of the meetings and I'll go to the other meeting. Um, so some days I'll actually be having two, two meetings, but, um, on an average year, we'll go to 320 meetings. Um, our busiest week is early May, where we go to, uh, if you can imagine, we go from Melbourne four hours to the north, then the next day three hours to the south, then uh, four hours east to a big carnival, stay there for two days, jump in the car for an eight-hour drive to New South Wales for a carnival up there, overnight it back to Melbourne for uh, the Saturday meeting there. So. Uh, Look, you have to, as I jokingly say, I'm sick, I need help. Um, I probably do. My bookmaking colleagues think I do because uh, truthfully, I would drive 10 hours to go to a race meeting if, if I was invited to work. And uh, your record is 2,807 self-written tickets in a day. Now, what, what, sort, of, what sort of stakes would those be? be you know with it what would they what would the range of those be for per bet oh for, from one dollar each way to you know guys having two or three four thousand on, on a runner um i think in the day in question i turned over 170,000. um it was our golden slipper day which is our two-year-old championship in sydney and we had two staff members not show up and so we have two stands. My, we have an inside stand and outside stand. My father had the inside stand with four staff and they did 3000 tickets and they beat me by about 180 tickets uh, outside. But I held more money than they did. And one okay. more. You tell me the bag men slow you down. Your, your staff sort of stop you taking as many bets. Is that right? I really think it does. I, to be honest, it's very rare that I actually even have a bag bin. And uh, next year when uh, we do hopefully get to Ascot, because let's be honest, never a greater time of the year to be in England than Ascot, Queen's Club, you know, Wimbledon, uh, a great couple of weeks. But 
I will work for Rob. Rob will do his socializing, I would assume, and I will spend a lot of time on the stand by myself, and I would happily bet any of the bookmakers there I'll turn over more tickets than they will, regardless of their staff counts. Now, this is a, this is a bit that um, you won't have a lot of competition, I'll tell you that, because most of them just stand there. And, and, and so if you're a showman and you say that you don't know what, the bookmakers don't know what business they're in, it's an entertainment and service business. So how do you differ from other bookmakers? Now you've said about it a bit, you you say, what what can I do for you? That sort of thing. But I mean, are you flamboyant on the joint? Do you sort of do a bit of a, you know, or do you make yourself known? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. First of all, uh, having taught tennis for a lot of years, I have a big voice. I can carry a voice. You know, I used to talk to people across tennis courts. So to talk through a betting ring really doesn't, you know, affect me very much to sing out. But, you know, um, I have a lot of sort of silly things I say to encourage them, you know, like when I'm at a small country meeting where there might be seven people in the betting ring and there's 10 minutes to go before the race, I might sing out, you know, very vocally, push in, avoid the rush, you know, uh, just to sort of get them and everyone laughs and has a look at the stand that immediately gets them, you know, focusing on you, which is one of the big things. Um, I, I famously have a joking, you know, statement that I sing out quite frequently. We've checked with the stewards. You're allowed to have a bet, you know. So, you know, you sing out some funny things. And I, I also will ask the punters trivia questions based on runners' names, you know, quite frequently. So, uh, you know, like there's a horse running around last year called Hedron Collider. And I'd offer people a $20 free bet if they could tell me where the Hedron Collider was. Uh, you know, so things like that, um, you know, just to make it a little bit more fun. Now that you chose to work your way up through, um, I know you got the rails pitches, which is unlucky, but you've had to work in a lot of bad pitches, I imagine. Now, do you have to sort of bet to a really poor margin just to turn over business in, in those poor pitches? Or if it's, if you're not betting to any sort of margin worth, do you sort of turn it in for the day? How would you carry on? No, no, I don't. I, I'm not a believer in turning it in. I think we're there off. We're there for a service. The races are give us an opportunity to use their facility to make a living. So we, we owe it to the clubs and we owe it to the people that are buying tickets and showing up to offer them a great service every single day. So if I go to, you know, a meeting at Bansdale where there might be a very, very poor crowd. Um, because it's cold and it's wet in the middle of the winter, I'm not going to suddenly go there and go, oh, well, you know, they're not here. There's only, I'm only two of us. We can offer a crappy product and a cheap, bad price. And they either take it or leave it. No, that's, that's not my opinion because those people talk. And when they go home and they say, I backed number seven in the first and I got $8 and it won. I was so happy. And their buddies say $8. It was $8 out to $12. When did you back it? You know, we destroy the reputation of other bookies as well as yourself. So I'm a great believer in that we are in a business that's customer service related. Like one of the things I'll do quite frequently, which seems nuts, but I might have uh, $3.50, which, you know, five to two in the old, or as we used the old, as you would have it, five to two. And I'm about to turn it out to three to one. 
uh, and a guy will walk up and save 50 bucks on it as I'm sort of going to turn it out. And I'll say to him, look, I'm about to turn it out to three to one. I'm going to give you the three to one because how angry are you at a, at a bookmaker if you take five to two and before you walk a step away from a stand, he rolls it out to four, three to one in your face. It's just, it's ridiculously bad business and, and not good for your long-term prospects. No, the minimum bet rule, Every all the professional gamblers in England, even gamblers that are just quite successful, without being professionals, they, they think, look at the minimum bet rule thinking, my God, if only we had that. Does that apply to a racehorse bookmaker? It's actually, the funny thing is the minimum bet rule is, is bigger on the race course than it is online. Um, when people, if someone came to woodcockracing.com, because we're new and we're smaller, we only have to bet anyone to lose $1,000 on any given bet. But if they come to me at Flemington, I have to bet that same customer to win 3,000. And because the minimum bet laws are bigger in New South Wales, I have to bet a customer to win 5,000. So there's a certain degree of insanity to it that, which is also helps us, I think, in the long run, because if you do create a little bit more of an incentive to come to the track, the best prices are always at the track in, in Australia. And you know, if you know you can get on for more money and you can get on at a better price, at least there's some incentive to you know put your phone in your pocket and, and get yourself out to the race course. Okay, so do you have you got the right to refuse a punter point blank because you don't like them or because they're far too clever for you? Can you like close their account so that minimum bet rule doesn't come into effect? The only thing you can, the only rule, and they should change it, and there's actually reviewing the policy right now, and it's it is sort of one-sided to be honest, is that um, bookmakers get prices from interstate meetings through a, the service. They basically are sending you the price you know, uh, from the track. So we're allowed to use a computer to get our prices, but if a punter is using a computer to put his bets on, he's not allowed to do that. They have to do that themselves you know, or you know, on the phone or hand type the things. They can't have a bot, as some you know, smarter people will know a bot is. Um, that's crazy. I, I think that punters should be allowed to have bots. The only part of the minimum bet rules that I disagree with is I don't believe we're there for bookmakers because there are a lot of bookmakers that are sort of punters as well. And we're there to serve a customer and the customer is the people buying tickets. So I don't think there should be minimum bet laws for bookmakers to bookmaker transactions. You know, that's just, I would bet a bookmaker I know who bets with me in good faith. Um, it's not just trying to knock me off because Betfair has gone off a, a tad. Um, but there are some that really are just, and, and the worst part of it is a gentleman who owns the horse is walking to your stand and some bookmaker's clerk goes running by him and screams out to win 2,000 or 3,000 or five, and I've got to bet him. And now I've got to refuse the, the owner. That to me is insane. I never do refuse the owner in that case, but I don't think I should have to bet the, the bookmaker at the exclusion of the, the owner or the, the punter. Okay, well, Warren, you talked about uh, bookmakers at punters. Are you a punter yourself? 
Um, I am the biggest non-punter you've ever met. Um, I will have $50 on a football game that I'm with friends type thing. Um, I do occasionally back horses back because I do, as I said earlier, I do no form. I have absolutely no idea how long most races are. Um, I just think that my business is, is creating the, the business, not, you know, the prices are easy to figure out, really. If you look around the ring, there are very smart bookmakers with prices and you can sort of, you know, crib off of them. But um, no, I'm not a big punter, but it's, it's funny. I have occasionally backed a horse for no reason other than something in the back of my head sort of says, yeah, you probably should have something back on this one. And my, my memory seems to serve me fairly well with that. Okay, there's something I want to go back to. Um, a lot of racecourse bookmakers over here be watching this and thinking, well, that's all very well. You can work in a poor pitch. Everyone that's worked on a racecourse, especially in off-meeting, knows that the only volume of money for a horse is probably lively. So if you're stood there on the back row offering a good price, how do you stop getting picked off? I mean, you can go there and lose bundles just because you're in a bad pitch offering good prices because the only money is the sharp money. How, how, what do you sort of do to counteract that problem? I don't agree with that, to be perfectly honest, because what's a bad pitch? I mean, the other day I was at Caulfield. I was on the worst stand on the course, and I wrote, I think, the most tickets for cash off the ground. If, you're, if the people on the race course, which they quickly learn, you consistently offer good prices and will let people on whether they're, you know, there's a trainer here, Tony Romeo is not a very successful trainer, but he walked up to me one day and the ring was a hundred to one a horse of his and his horse should have been 10,000 to one. In my opinion, um, he was hopeless. I put up 500 to one and he walked up and he said, can I have a hundred on it? I said, sure. And then another one of his guys said, can I have a hundred? Yeah, another one. And by the time I was done, I was at working at this absolutely nothing meeting in the middle of nowhere. And on the race, I was holding $650 and standing one for about 200,000. It was just, it was just ridiculous. And as they were walking away, I said to him, I said, Tony, I think I could buy your whole stable with the amount of money you'll win if this thing wins. And he went uh, about six times, you know, but just because who's smart at the end of the day? I mean, there's a few punters that, yes, will beat you. But the smartest punters in the world are winning three, four, five percent on turnover. So let me ask you a question. I mean, if I bet a guy to win $2,000 and he's going to win three percent off me, and I've just found out what he likes by him having that bet, aren't I better prepared to bet the rest of the customers for that race? And it's actually an advantage. So everyone wants to say that, you know, oh, they're so smart. No one, they can't be just because you can't beat them. It doesn't mean that, that what you learn from their business doesn't make you more viable in the long run. Okay. So how many, how many professional punters do you think would operate on course at full-time backers? Um, I think probably in the city, I'd say there's probably about six or seven on course because Right now, there's this incredible uh, influx of online bookies. In the last, with COVID, probably 40 bookmakers have gone online. So it used to be sort of the big, 
English corporates and a few uh, Australian corporates. And you know, one of the people at some point you should speak to is Tristan Merlihan, who runs Top Sport, which is one of the leading online bookies here. And to be perfectly honest, um, probably the best in the business at it because he bets all the pros. And not only does he bet them, he has bonus programs that he gives to the pros. He doesn't pull the, you know, the punches with anyone because he understands that in the long run, a great service gets a great reputation, creates a ton of business. And that's really what we're all about at the end of the day. You know, successful bookmakers that are here for a long time have one thing in common, the general public, the punters are comfortable betting with them and like what you offer them. This, uh, some of this has been, what, 20 years now almost. Bookmakers on course stop betting, hedging with each other. They just now hedge straight into the, what they call the machine, the exchange. Is that something that happens on course in Australia now? It does. I, I think that it's an embarrassment that people do that. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that I don't back things back. I do. Uh, we all will. But when you start your business with one of the companies, uh, one of the big betting systems in England tried to come out here. And the, the one thing that we all thought was a joke when they showed us the system was the green button. You know, where you at jump time, you could push the green button, it would back horses and lay them and turn everything into a profit. You know, um, and that just to me is insane. The idea of bookmaking is that, you know, it's a little bit of I'm taking you on and there's a competitiveness to it and it's good natured and it's, but if there's no risk, I might as well honestly go run a McDonald's because it, it sure as hell would be easier work than jumping in the car and driving all around the country. Yeah, there's a lot of people talk about the green up button. Um, yeah, with disdain. But I, I don't think English bookmakers use it as much as people think they do, but there are definitely some that only go for that. Anyway, now you've said that um, some of the on-course business, I've, I've been told that the on-course business has got a lot worse in the last decade, but you feel it will make a comeback. What, why do you think that is? Well, first off, um, my turnover figures on course has grown every year since 2014. Um, some of that definitely is related to the fact that I work more meetings, but I think it also relates to the fact that there are people coming to the course that are willing to have a bet if you're willing to let them have a bet. And not every person who wants to have $1,000 on a horse or $2,000 on a horse is a genius. They might own it, you know, or they might just be a guy who's been working in the mines for a month and he's made a fair chunk of money and coming to the races and having 500 bucks is his idea of an entertaining day. So to go to Moe and have 5,000 to 500 on something because he likes it is, and if you, if you don't play those guys, well, then, you know, if every one of those that walks up, you say, oh, just to win the thousand, which is what you have to bet them at the small country meetings, they don't come back up to you. Uh, they go to the guy who will let them on. And there's percentage there. You have it. You definitely can can 
you know, if you're a little bit aware, you can catch a few right and lay a few, you know, at the unders. And as we talk about Rob again, but Rob famously gave me one piece of advice that successful bookies lay them at the unders and back punt, successful punters back them at the overs. And even if you're the best punter in Australia, if I can get you to take it from me on your second trip or third trip through the ring to back it, you have really no advantage. So. Okay, now you said that um, that you think that the industry in Australia has been damaged by bad bookies. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? I just think that too many of our bookies, um, as I go back to, don't understand that you know, they used to, when I first came to Australia in the early 80s and went to the races, the bookies used to talk about the punters as oh, the mugs. Well, if, you're, if you treat your customer, whether you run a restaurant or you know, a carpet cleaning business or whatever, if you treat your customers as the mugs, they're going to quickly draw away from you. And there's still two, there's not a great influx of young bookies. And the young bookies, I think, are much better than some of the older ones. But, you know, they're also, we get a little jaded. When you're holding $100,000 on a Wednesday, you know, when you're in the mid 80s and now you're holding 20, you know, you sort of think, well, what am I doing this for? And some of them don't, you know, handle it as well as others. But um, it just comes down to me at the end of the day that if you treat people with respect, like I say to every person when they have a bet with me, as I'm handing them the ticket, good luck. And so many people say, oh, you don't want me to have good luck. You don't want my horse to win. Well, the truth of the matter is when I have the bet with them, I don't know if I want that horse to win or lose. By the time they jump, I might be cheering like hell for your horse. So, and, also, and to my way of thinking, it's like we've all sold a used car in our life. If you sell your used car, no one in the world, unless you're a psychopath, hopes that their car blows up on the guy as he's driving it out of your driveway. You hope the car runs well for them. So, you know, hey, I sold it to you at the price I wanted to sell it. You bought it at the price you wanted to buy it. We've made a trade where both of us are happy. Good luck. I can't change the result. If your horse wins, it wins. You know, and you're going to come back and bet with me again because you know, we were respectful when we took the bet. We're going to be respectful when we're paying you after the bet. And, you know, one of the things that I would say is, you know, next year when we come to Ascot, I hope some of your viewers come to Rob's stand because I'll be there clarking away and, and, you know, sort of experience it because we do try and make it a little bit more fun. Okay, now finally, that's a great note to, uh, to end on, but finally, so you're going to Royal Ascot with Rob, you're going to make a book in England. Have you got to where you want to be with your business at the moment? Have you reached the, where you're happy or have you still got burning ambitions to do a bit more? Oh, no, I have very burning ambitions to do a bit more. Um, a couple of years ago, I was very involved with tennis, um, not from a betting point of view, but, view, but from an integrity point of view where I've created a company with some others called Integrigator about, um, and in the commission about the tennis betting, we were in there that, you know, they should split up bet radar who puts the prices out and someone for integrity. Um, I think that that's a big 
aspect of it going forward, but I'd like to expand into America now that they're legalizing it. But, uh, you know, that's a little bit beyond my financial means at this stage. Um, I'd love to, um, I offered Rob to buy into the stand with him. Um, he wasn't, he just wanted, didn't want that at this point, but maybe next time I'll buy a stand at say Goodwood because um, it's a place I'd love to field. Um, I'd love to field in news. I'd love to field in a thousand places, but you know, my father went to Goodwood in the fifties when he was playing tennis at Wimbledon and was talking about how fantastic it was. I've gone there once when on a non-race day to see it, but I'd love to go to Goodwood. I'd love to work at Royal Ascot in, under my own name. Um, I'd love to one day work in Paris and, and have a license to work there or work at the Kentucky Derby. Um, there's a hell of a lot of racetracks I haven't visited and a hell of a lot of places I haven't gone that, you know, I'd like to go and, and experience their racing. Um, I used to go to Wentworth Park, Dog, uh, sorry, Wimbledon Dogs with my dad after going to the tennis when that existed. And we just had, I had such a great time and going down, you know, with the bookies right there against the, the course. And it, it was just, it was an electric experience for a young guy. And uh, I want to have more of those because I, every track I go to that I haven't been to, I get excited as I get to the gate. Yeah. So now I'm far from, uh, I'm 57 this year. Uh, I'd like to probably see another 200 race courses I haven't seen before uh, they decide that I've had enough. That's brilliant. Well, we'll see you at Royal Ascot next year anyway. On Rob's, uh, Absolutely. On Rob's Absolutely. And, uh, thank, thank you ever so much for the interview. And I look forward to seeing you next year. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And listen, next time when we are over there, um, you'll have to come to Wimbledon or Queens as my guest. Fantastic. That's, 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 a, that's a ticket I can actually get. <laughs> well, I'll definitely take you up on that. Thank you very much. <laughs> so thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.